Hi, and welcome to Showcast, the podcast that explores the creative journey of concerts, films, theatre shows, and public art made with Notch. Join me, Kat Kemsley, as we hear from the people behind the pixels. Today, I'm speaking with co-founder and director of technical workflows at Dandelion and Burdock, Nils Porman. I was inspired to speak with Nils after reading his blog series, Mixed Reality Studios, a primer for producers, and virtual production with Notch and Disguise. In this episode, Nils shares his secret to managing client expectations, as well as the budget, time, and labor considerations that you need to make if you're pitching a virtual production. If you're about to embark on your first virtual or mixed reality project, then this is the episode for you. You're listening to The Notch Showcast. Hi, Nils, and welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. So we last caught up a few weeks ago, and you were quarantining in Berlin before heading further afield for a shoot. How have the last couple of weeks been for you? They have been pretty uneventful. We've been waiting in in the UK, I've been waiting in Germany, and now uh, hopefully going to Asia very soon. It's been a waiting game, but coordinating a lot of work from wherever. So really, I'm, I'm less phased by working um, remotely. And how have you kept yourself busy other than working? Um, mostly, mostly by keeping a rhythm, by keeping the, the good habits that I've learned in lockdown. And other than that, there's actually a lot to do. Can you tell me a bit about what kind of project you'll be working on over in Asia? Yeah, sure. Without going into too much detail or or bridging an NDA, I'm working on a theatrical show, which is an internal projection into the proscenium and parts of the stage, which we've been working on for the best part of almost two and a half years, this is now coming to, to installation phase, which is the other mm. very exciting part where you see all the elements that you've planned out come together, hopefully. Yeah, it must be exciting to get hands-on again with something like this. It's been interesting because those kinds of projects that go into installation have mm. not necessarily been cancelled. They've got mm. delayed at points, but they also continue to evolve. So there were updates to our workflow. There were updates to all the elements that we need to deliver. There's updates to the teams because mm. of COVID as well. So th- there's certainly still challenges, but the overarching idea of delivering this to site has been unimpeded, luckily. If the pandemic's taught you one positive thing about your creative process, what is it? I think backwards to when we started. So Dandelion and Burdock has been around since 2005. And Mm -hmm. it's always about being resourceful and not necessarily trying to expand too much. We have seen 2008, 2009. Back then, uh, one of our big sales points to our clients then was to be small and to sort of uh, size our approach to what clients really wanted and what they required at the time. And then that flexibility has come in very handy with us Mm. in the last, in the last 12 or 13 months. Yeah. I think being resourceful, thinking of 
all the elements that you have and recycle certain ideas when needed or bringing mm. certain ideas to a certain point, leaving them in a drawer and then put them out on the table when there is time and application for them. Do you keep a, like a notebook or a Google Drive of all your ideas or is it something that you just store in your mental catalogue? Yeah, I think this is a little bit more like one of those mental palaces. It's mostly being resourceful about all the all the different irons that you have on the fire. And that can be a workflow. It can be a visual idea, but it can also be something that we worked on last year or so. Mm. Um, to give you an example, because of the early part of COVID, we did a lot of, or I personally did a lot of 3D modeling and, and rigging in, in Blender and we virtualized lights and now we can use a lot of the rigs that we've built. So I got in touch with you, you mentioned virtual production. I got in touch with you after reading a series of articles you wrote on the topic, one of which was quite an in-depth piece called Mixed Reality Studios, a primer for producers, which you co-wrote with Laura Frank and Thomas Cother. And um, you also wrote virtual production with Notch and Disguise. So first of all, thank you for putting together such a useful resource. It must have taken a lot of time and thought and planning to kind of put together an in-depth piece of coverage as that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess I guess there's nothing to be too thankful for. It, this can always go in, in several directions, but it's mm -hmm. nice that it's being recognised and I'm really hoping that people can lean on some of the things that we've learned. In all fairness, this is also something that we love doing because it's see one, uh, do one, teach one. And that, that approach definitely helps me and some other people in our team to make sure that certain knowledge gets manifested in a way. And I have to say it was a great honor to co-write with Laura and with Thomas and have some other people bring new ideas to the table. Having Laura mm. inside a conversation obviously brings a lot of experience in working with teams to a discussion and working mm. with Thomas brings much more lighting experience in than I personally have. So there's a lot of things I'd like to talk to you about taking inspiration from what I've read in your blogs. But first, I think it's important to talk about Dandelion and Burdock. From what I've researched, you founded Dandelion and Burdock with Niall Thompson around 15 years ago. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, it doesn't feel that long, but it, yeah, it, it, certainly, it certainly is. It, it will be 16 years this year. Um, yeah, we started straight out of uni. Um, yeah, gosh, it's been a time. Mm. I mean, you've done a lot of projects in that time. You've conceptualized and delivered like a huge range of projects. Um, a few examples that I came across are product launches and mixed reality broadcasts for brands like Ford projection mapping for public spaces like the Guggenheim and for brands like Nike and Louis Vuitton, as well as creating video for festivals, concert tours and theatre shows like The Tempest and Harry Potter. So a massive range of projects and kind of hitting a few different canvases, a few different mediums. You said that you and now kind of got started straight out of uni 
And I noticed that you both studied at um, University of Arts London at the same time. Is this where you guys met? Yeah, we did. Um, and let me just interject that there. You've mentioned a, a lot of projects. Thank you for that, because I, I would probably fail to name them all. But um, <laughs> to make sure that this is always a collaborative approach. So some mm. of these, some of these, we've worked with the director with clients. Some of the things you mentioned, we were we were second in line. This is something that we do do a lot. We basically help other teams along the way. We just are aware that pretty much everything we touch these days is digital. And this is probably, now I can take you back to that founding time. Niall and myself both are trained illustrators, but at the time, the London College of Arts had the approach that illustration was more about being clever about a subject in, in a very literal sense, shining light on something or elucidating, creating, creating a better understanding of something. So illustration wasn't just drawing. I guess we took a lot of that into our practice. So a bit more technical, kind of like how you imagine the IKEA instructions, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> technical on the one side, but also mm -hmm. more conceptual on the other. So okay. in order to be consistent about the narrative or be consistent about the motivation that you have. So for us, the mm. motivation was always to create yet another dimension. You know, illustration doesn't necessarily end on a sheet of A4 paper with a, a drawing on top of it. Is that how you guys got into projection mapping? Yeah, it was a very, very particular point in time when we worked with a, an artist, a conceptual artist from the UK, Jamie Shovlin, and he came to us saying, um, I heard you guys are doing some crazy prints. Would mm -hmm. you like to do some of my work in commission? And at the time we did, we got talking to him and he had a separate art happening, like an art event, which was called Lustfaust, some sort of conceptual band. And mm -hmm. for that, we basically wrote a small piece of software that would allow us to bring 3D surfaces into back then Quartz Composer. Some people may remember that. And we connected a bunch of MIDI devices to it and then had our own 3D representation of the space where his event should have taken place. And so we devised a plan on doing a projection mapping into this building, which was the Contemporary Arts Gallery in Naples. And that kind of started to open up a, a, a plethora of, of new directions. And it snowballed from there. Yeah, it really snowballed from there. And for us, what became apparent is we weren't capable of writing software to the extent that we really needed it to be. Uh, the, the technical hurdle was a little bit too high. You couldn't have used Quartz Composer to create more complicated things. So we started being much more focused on workflow and the animation side of things and had to lean then more onto things like Disguise and Notch to really fulfill that ever-increasing dimension in the things that we wanted to play with. And I did dig up a few uh, music videos from around that time, which um, yourself and Niall also directed. Was this kind of your entry point into moving image? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was also all driven by a lot of trial and error. We were part mm -hmm. of a community in Hackney Wick at the time, which Hackney Wick had, I think, one shop and a greasy spoon and mm -hmm. a lot of the London uh, new media artists around. Uh, and we basically all shared the same studio spaces and then were basically doing a lot of experimentation from there. Absolutely. Like I think music videos are a really good opportunity to experiment with new ideas and try out concepts without too high of a risk, really. Yeah, at the time they were a great door opener, but the <laughs> time of the big music video was also over by, by mm. then. And they are still a great pool for new ideas and mm. testing out things, but they're no longer a, a big way of creating new and exciting workflows. So I think what mm. they taught us were how to, how to handle technology, but not necessarily provide us with the right dimensions because Something that we are less keen on in our work is just the 16 by 9 flat screen. And mm -hmm. that was something that we never were that attracted by. It was coming back to what I just said about our event together with Amy Shovlin. That was eye-opening because you work and you work and you work. And suddenly there is also a relief to all of that. There is an event and that event isn't just a relief for the people that have worked on the project. It's also seen for the first time and hopefully executed so that it actually is flawless. And then there is an audience that can enjoy it. And there is a community and an experience that you are now sharing with all those people in the audience. And so mm -hmm. those dimensions really bridge the gap from illustration and maybe delighting somebody about a certain subject visually or conceptually or with something that they haven't seen, like that wow moment. Mm -hmm. So it really brought that together. And this is, I think, why we still are. I personally definitely am, but everybody in Dandelion and Burdock is excited about the event and about mm. creating that new dimension and hopefully doing that with an audience and delighting a lot of people. Absolutely. And kind of bringing all of this together, have you found that the combination of your experience in video production and projection mapping has helped your understanding of virtual production workflows? The, the very short answer is yes. The longer answer is that, to give you an example, it was when we did Polar Ralph Lauren with UVA, we had... I think two or three of the latest Mac towers back then. And mm -hmm. they calculated our scenes for two buildings, I think a rough amount of three weeks. And okay. we ended up bringing a lot of our scenes to the MPC office in London, who were then rendering it on their render farm in, mm -hmm. in Heathrow. And it came back after three hours and the hard drive still warm like, like bread. And mm -hmm. they're like, here you go. And we're like, wow, that's incredible. They have got so much computing power. But now, due to rendering like we have it in Notch and other real-time environments, we can do this and we don't wait for the frame. It's there mm -hmm. and it's even in our laps. So the, the order of magnitude in which computation has changed even in the last 10 years mm -hmm. is now so vast that virtual productions and virtual sets 
they became enforced through COVID, but also they were ready for that mm. taking. Now we know how projection mapping works. We can employ that idea into a new environment. It certainly is bridging into the next dimension where we're not waiting for the render, but we're, we're using it in the moment that we require it. It is a fairly new workflow and technology. So Dandelion and Burdock, you guys were the first studio to go in and test Disguise's new XR space in London. Before that, had you ever produced a fully XR project or been in that kind of fully XR space before? It was the first time that we tested all these things out, especially mm. with Notch. But mm. we had, of course, done a number of augmented reality shoots in mm. the year before. It wasn't an alien space, but it certainly mm. was an exciting space to put it all together. And how has your approach changed from your first virtual production project to how you work now? A, a definite change has been how we are doing version control. So mm. now, we have to work with teams that are, for example, in a production space. On the one hand, it's the, it's the way that our team needs to communicate. On the other hand, it's how we're logging changes to our XR deliverables. Mm -hmm. And that is very much version control via the cloud or version control on servers that are in a studio or in, in a different studio with a client so that we can backtrack all of all of the things that might change and that other stakeholders are adding or removing from a scene. If I can quote you back to yourself, if that's okay, <laughs> from, yeah. from something you've written, while media servers, LED screens and camera tracking has been in use for some time, mixing these tools creates an entirely new production paradigm. And to consider every XR project part of a grander experiment to change the future of live events and broadcast production. Don't let familiarity with the individual components of XR lull a production team into a false sense of understanding of how a production should be run and what it will cost. Yes, that, that has a lot of dimensions. I, I think mm. I uh, probably put way too much into that, those sentences. <laughs> um, let me maybe take this chance to take this apart into two different areas that I mm -hmm. would want to address. One being... The, the actual money and production side and the people that manage not just budgets, but also time with mm. people. Because everything is now real time and rendered in real time, but it's not necessarily to everybody's benefit or it is to our benefit visually, but it's not meaning that we can design in real time. Um, the design process, if anything, takes even longer because what the new dimension to design is, is debugging. Does this actually render properly? Does, does it render properly every time? Do we actually have all the resources we need? Have we tested our scene or our interactivity on the correct hardware? Have we benchmarked the performance of our servers? There's, there's a lot more questions to that process that also are on the designer's shoulders. Producers now don't necessarily have the means to oversee this process entirely. It's, it's very, very hard to keep track of all the moving elements there and where, where responsibilities start and, and, and end. 
So I think that's one dimension. The other dimension、mm-hmm. is one of what different parts of your production are actually being drawn into the bigger discussion on how to create a virtual set, because a virtual set is just one part of a general setting. So much still that can be unpackaged from even your breakdown. Yeah, I think the requirement is,、um, and and this is probably one big reason for the article we have there, is to create more of a glossary, create more of an、mm-hmm. understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about XR or AR and VR and.、Um, That there is at least a little bit of a, of a guidance, what the directions are、mm. and what the wording could be, so that we are all starting to have at least one language. Yeah, absolutely. You've kind of used a lot of、uh, visual aids in your writing. There are flow diagrams. There's also animatics that you've included. All the imagery it really paints quite a accessible picture for like someone who's trying to learn and understand about the process. This is again touching on what we really want. We want everybody to have a good experience and to maybe brief the people that are working in our industry in a in a comprehensive way. Because if we have that comprehensive way, we can also budget and guide that process in the appropriate、uh, mm-hmm. way much faster, and that's to everybody's benefit. Because if, if we've learned something about XR productions, then they're by no means a A simple thing, and they're not necessarily very fast either. In one of the articles, you mentioned that when it comes to any production, there are two worlds: what the client expects versus what is viable. And on top of this, in virtual production, there's a shift in the content creator's role. A lot of people at the moment will be in a bit of a squeeze and willing to deliver a project even if the budget is lower than usual. Do you think the blanket term of virtual production? Perhaps provides enough leeway for producers to offer some virtual elements while steering clients without the budget away from an all bells and whistles kind of virtual XR production. Well, you know, there is there's certain levers that we can use to drive any of these decisions, and luckily,、uh, neither Corona nor XR and new technology are changing those. It's quality. And and time and budget. We need to see these all together. And in design terms, for an XR stage,、mm-hmm. you have to know what the limitations are, and they are a lot more manifold than just a certain resolution and a certain、mm-hmm. frame rate. They are now much more about integration with the stage, integrating with the light, and integrating with. Talent, or with other teams that are also working on other elements of that、mm. XR shoot. So、mm. I, I do expect that there's also going to be packages of certain XR sets that say these are the things that you can that you can use as your as your guiding rails for producing in our space.、Mm. And yes, there is ways of producing exciting XR content for for a decent budget. However, If you're expecting real-time photorealistic content, then you need a lot of teams to work on that, or you need a very big team for a long time. It's not it's not done in three weeks' time. I know that you're an advocate of an all-team approach, and you note 
that one of the biggest blockers to virtual production success is not always cost or time, but a resistance to a new crew structure. And you gave a really good example on that of um, a director experimenting with a shot uh, that goes outside the allowable zoom range. And, you know, in a typical situation, the set designer or art director would be called over and assess how that space could be incorporated into the shot. Whereas in this new format, you've got someone who's, you know, normally sat quietly at the back of the room stepping in and saying, well, actually, no, we, we can't achieve that shot and having to explain the reasons why. And to some degree, that, that role of stepping in is the XR or screen producer's role as well, communicating new limitations, which everyone might not be aware of at the moment. Our North American friends are a lot more advanced in that regard, because a typical production has the role of a screens producer, which cannot be valued high enough. In an XR world, we will also have to have XR specialists or at least people aware of where the possible interception points are when creating XR. And one way I try to think about that is the degrees of freedom that we have to a particular shoot. So you would think that all XR shoots are a lot like games, that you can really turn the stage uh, in any one direction you would wish and that you can look under every table and move every chair. But that's not necessarily true. Those are interactivities that need to be discussed. In Hollywood movies, you never see that that particular vision being broken because you're watching it after the fact and everything has been designed to have perfect cause and effect. Whereas in an XR setting, you think you're led to believe that everything is indeed um, free to move and everything is possible at that very moment, while what is actually happening the, 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 in terms of narrative or in terms of transitions and in terms of camera angles has been very carefully defined, and that goes to lighting mm. and so on as well. And it creates new challenges. Those challenges are exactly those interactivities. And as we're kind of coming to the close of our interview, I'd like to pose a question which you ask in your article back to you to see if perhaps you've kind of thought of a, I don't know, an answer. It's a bit of a philosophical question, which is we're used to creating looks that only allude the audience to think that something is. So why is the format of streaming changing it? Hmm. Yes, I think that that question to me now means much more about the immediacy of something happening and the, the sort of the live nature of something happening rather than than the photorealistic or, or mm. absolutely real looking element. We seem to be more captivated by something that is actually happening in the real world at this very moment. Let's say you're looking at sports and you're, you're watching the football, you are assuming that the sports are in fact broadcast live to you at that mm. very moment. Um, coming back to VR and XR productions, what's exciting there is that we are assuming that it's happening for our point of view or the camera's or tourism point of view 
in real time. The question that I'm posing there is, we seem to think that there is more value to that. Whereas mm. our clients sometimes think there's more value to creating a higher visual impact. And I think I'm still asking the question, what's creating more value to us? Yeah, and that's just scratching the surface of a whole lot of theory on communications generally, like how communication is changing or ha has been changing. Yeah, I mean, maybe time to like whack out some Marshall McLuhan again or, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think personally, and I, I think that's probably in closing, I do believe that we give experiences more value and to me that mm. value is still in the special moment so what i still want to see is xr and vr and real-time content but in the context of something that we can form a memory with in a space where we share that experience with others the core of that is basically the idea and the creativity absolutely the the creativity and the memory of that are of of the highest interest to me and not so much that we enslave ourselves just to the technical execution that mm -hmm. is very important but what excites me about this is again bringing people together and creating experiences for anyone who's thinking of coming into this world of, of virtual production mixed reality production what advice would you give to them yeah, I think, I think, think about your motivation. Think about mm -hmm. the, the stories you might want to tell and don't get sidetracked by a particular style that somebody else has made. It's that experimentation and also just get started. I do think that a fundamental skill is understanding three dimensional spaces, but not just in terms of a 3D program, but also in terms of I'm looking at the scene, I want to maybe I want to touch this scene and I want to model that up in clay or so, but there's a certain understanding of space. And I think that comes from a fundamental artisan or craftsman type of hands-on approach. And I think you can't have the one without the other. So mm -hmm. if anything, don't just get get bucked down by pushing pixels around. It's also about drawing this out or, or making a model in paper from it. Brilliant. Well, Nils, it's been a real treat talking with you today and I've learned so much. So thank you so much for taking some time out to have a chat with me. And I look forward to speaking with you again soon and exploring more of these topics. So thank you very much, Nils. Thank you. Okay, bye now. You can find out more about Dandelion and Burdock by heading over to their website dandelion-burdock.com or by following them on Instagram at Dandelion Burdock Studio and Twitter at dmb underscore info. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then let us know on Twitter or Facebook at Notch VFX. If you'd like your work featured on our Instagram feed at Notch VFX, use the hashtag made with Notch. Next week, we hear from screen producer, writer, and co-founder of the Framework community, Laura Frank. Join us as we discuss the role of the screen producer, what they do, and how to get on the road to becoming one. Today's episode was mastered by Dor Ines and produced by Ben Stams and myself, Kat Kemsley. Thanks for listening.